The singer of that last song was um, the featured artist at last year's denominational General Assembly in uh, Minneapolis. He's also a man that has um, done a lot of music for the Michael Dowd and Connie... Uh Uh-oh. Can't remember Connie's last name. They came here. They do a program called Thank God for Evolution. And um, they go around trying to demonstrate that our differences in perspectives are not unreconcilable. Um, Trying to help people within their meetings find things that work together. I want to take you down a rabbit hole just for a few moments by sharing uh, with you an excerpt from a novel called A Man Mad A Mad Man Dreams of Turing Machines by a theoretical physicist named Jana Levin. Um, in this book, Levin explores great existential questions by probing the lives and ideas of two pivotal 20th century uh, mathematicians, Kurt Gödel and uh, Alan Turing. Uh, Turing is known as the father of modern modern computing, and his insights were only made possible in part because of Gödel's discoveries. Uh, In 1931, Kurt Gödel shook the worlds of mathematics and philosophy and logic in his incompleteness theorems. Uh, He showed that some mathematical truths cannot be proved. Uh, uh, In Jen in 11's novel, he says, mathematics is perfect, but it's incomplete. To see some truths, you must stand outside and look in. It's kind of like the fish in the fishbowl not being able to describe the water or understand that it is water. This notion also held deeply unsettling human implications. It posited hard limits to what any of us can know logically and definitively. So in this scene in the novel, Gödel and Turing are in Vienna in a coffee house, and it's a famous intellectual gathering called the uh, Vienna Circle, with mathematician Olga Hahn Neurath and her husband Otto, who's a socialist, and uh, Moritz Schlick, who is a philosopher and logician, and he's kind of the one that heads up the Vienna Circle. The reading begins here. On every previous Thursday, Kurt has been a silent spectator, Tonight he looks from one person to another as he waits for the right opportunity. His temperature fluctuates while openings come and go until he throws out a question he knows they have asked themselves a thousand times. How do I recognize a fact of the world? Moritz laughs, but not rudely and nods, which loosens his hair only marginally from its proper place, before he stops himself, 
slightly sorry for his reaction as he takes in Kurt's serious expression. It's a fair question, he confesses. How do I verify a fact of the world? Such a simple question. Being honest, he can be sure only he sees. He can be sure only he touches. He watches Olga pull on a mammoth cigar. She has a calm about her, always at ease. The smoke drifts in curling plumes, sifting through her eyelashes. She doesn't seem to mind and even tends to hold the burning cinder vertically and uncomfortably close to her eyes. But what really arrests Moritz, what keeps his fingers frozen in a clutch around the cup, coffee suspended near his chin, is this question. Does Olga exist? He hangs there for what seems like a very long while. The conversation stalls. Suspended along with the coffee, Olga? Yes, Moritz, I'm here. She reaches over and hooks her thumb around his forefinger. The rest of her fingers scramble over to clasp his hand, but all Moritz concedes is that he can feel what he has learned to describe as pressure on what he believes to be his hand. Now, I realize that kind of rumination causes some people to laugh at what they find utterly absurd and totally drives other people over the edge. Personally, I enjoy it. <laughs> but unless it's associated with your line of work, the luxury to spend a lot of time going that far with questions... Is, it's really a luxury very few can afford. And no doubt, to live perpetu perpetually in that sort of questioning would be crippling. So it's nice to entertain every now and then, but we can't very likely navigate successfully if we're examining things to that depth, not, not knowing whether the ground is under our feet. Seriously. We move so quickly and assume as we go that volumes of things are facts. Things that we've never tested or certainly can't prove if we were asked to. If indeed we seek truth and justice and meaning, then let us stop to recognize that much of what we feel we know upon which we base our opinions and perhaps actions, much of that 
in which we have confidence is really more, really little more than preference of ideas. The responses we have to challenging times, people, or circumstances may well be preconditioned by programs we're carrying around with us unexamined. I know just about anybody that would come to a Unitarian Universalist church has done a lot of examining perhaps more than most. Um, I don't have the current data on this, but in years past, Unitarian Universalists have counted among our membership numbers a higher percentage of introverts than any other denomination. I bring that up because in a recent edition of Psychology Today, there was an article titled Revenge of the Introverts. (laughs) It stated that introverts seem to process more information than others at any given situation, not necessarily process it better or more thoroughly, just more of it. So they get overwhelmed more easily by the information. Um, To digest it, they do best in quiet environments, interacting one-on-one. Further, their brains are less dependent on external stimuli and rewards to feel good. As a result, introverts are not driven to seek big hits of positive emotional arousal. They'd rather find meaning than bliss. Making them relatively immune to the search for happiness that permeates contemporary American culture. In fact, the cultural emphasis on happiness may actually threaten their mental health. Now, if the statistical slant is still holding true, then a sense of meaning is more important to more of you than happiness. I know not everyone here is an introvert. (laughs) But that piece of information is significant. Because while some people are think it's there's nothing more important than, than being happy or making other people happy or finding happiness, that doesn't even matter to some people. Not comparatively anyway. And what we find meaningful, or where we find meaning, is more varied even than how important it is to us to find meaning. So my question to you here today is, where are you turning to develop that deeper sense of meaning that goes beyond the particulars of your everyday life? At the beginning of the service, I asked, what was, what's going to be left 
if anything, the echoes of our existence as individuals, as a species, as a life form anywhere in the universe? What is it that holds the potential for the deepest contentment that we might know in our lives? There's an author named, and a psychologist, I believe, named James Hollis, who uh, says that clearly the responsibility for finding meaning rests squarely on our own shoulders. Last week I spoke a little about John O. Donahue, and Donahue felt that meaning lies in creating beauty. Not visibly necessarily lovely things, but beauty of thought and how one sees in all levels of existence on the planet. He said, beauty is more rounded, substantial becoming. And I think when we cross a new threshold, that if we cross it worthily, what we do is we heal the patterns of repetition that were in us that had us caught somewhere. And in our crossing, then we cross onto new ground where we just don't repeat what we've been through in the last place we were. He goes on to say that he thinks beauty in that sense is about an emerging fullness, a greater sense of grace and elegance, a deeper sense of depth, and also a kind of homecoming for the enriched memory of an unfolding life. Donahue is clearly a mystic. He believed that everyone is an artist, And he believes that everyone, whether they choose to or not, is involved in creating the world. Whether they choose to be or not is involved in creating the world and and its construction. So it's never as given as it actually looks. You're always shaping and building it. Um, And secondly, he believed that anyone and everyone has imagination that no matter how mature an adult and sophisticated a person they are, they are essentially an ex-baby. And children live in an imaginal world. If you tell them not to go across the wall, there are monsters over there. Oh my, the imagination will run. Jan Eleven, on the other hand, the theoretical physicist, sees things in a very different way. She explains that one of the painful but beautiful things about being a scientist is being able to say, it doesn't matter what I believe. I might believe that the universe is a certain age, but if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. There's something really thrilling about being committed to that. She sees the universe as all the more remarkable 
because we can understand it to a certain extent. Uh, And I quote, It's really, really astounding that these little creatures on this little planet that seem totally insignificant in the middle of nowhere, we're not special, we're not in a special place, can look back over the 14 billion year history of the universe and understand so much of it in such a short time. But Jan 11 also comes back and says scientists often share a very childlike wonder for the world. So between Donahue's completely mystical approach to meaning and Levin's scientific pragmatism, they share a valuing of wonder and childlike enthusiasm. We live in a world of opposites. The way we can most significantly bring elevated meaning to this world is by finding our way out of the places that we're stuck and finding meaning in that wonder. If we do that, deeper truth can surface and more profound healing can occur. Martin Luther King Jr. said, life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. I really like that quote. 